In this edition of Emergence, we talked to Dr. Pitt Beard about the recent findings to do with lumpy skin disease and its transmission. Welcome to Emergence, brought to you by MSD Animal Health and hosted by me, Dr. Alistair King. All views expressed during this podcast are those of myself and my guests. I'm very pleased to be able to bring you a talk with Dr. Pitt Beard from the Purbright Institute in the UK. They've recently published a paper in the Journal of Virology titled Quantifying and Modelling the Acquisition and Retention of Lumpy Skin Disease Virus by Hematophagous Insects Reveals Clinical but Not Subclinically Affected Cattle are Promoters of Viral Transmission and Key Targets for Control of Disease Outbreaks. There's some really important findings in this. It helps us understand how the disease is transmitted, how we're seeing the spread of lumpy skin disease, and that therefore helps us also understand how to control it better. I'm very pleased to be able to get her on so we could have a talk. She is in her lab, so there are noises of automatic windows and a few people around. And I promise you, despite the sound at some points, no one is eating an apple during this interview. Let's go straight into the talk with Dr. Pitt Beard and hear what she has to say. Pip, thank you so much for joining me. I've been trying to get you on for ages. <laughs> and this is really good timing because you've just released this paper on the modelling of how, how the disease is spread, how lumpy skin is spread. There's still a lot more work to do, but what you've found out already is groundbreaking. So it's, it's really exciting. Oh, thank good you to very have much. You That's very kind of you. Before we talk about that paper, just a little bit about lumpy skin disease. We've got this disease which used to just be in Africa and now has spread. There's still a lot of questions over how that happened. So I wonder if you could just talk about that a little bit. Thank you very much for the invite, first of all. Lovely to have a chat with you about this. Um, and yeah, lumpy skin disease is a very timely disease at the moment. Uh, has spread very quickly from what people often think of as the traditional home of it, and uh, where it's been found for, for many years in Africa. I'm not sure that many people know why it suddenly spread so quickly. Um, so it had been gradually moving up from um, South Africa um, since, on I think, first um, identified in 1920s and then kind of moved up and up. People started to have some outbreaks in the south part of the Middle East, so um, Israel and places like that, in the, I think the 1980s, maybe one or two, but the 1990s for sure. And then it kind of stayed around in that area for the next 20 or so years with occasional outbreaks. And some people were saying there's, there's a block, there's a reason why lumpy skin disease can't move any further north than that, so it's, it's never going to get any further. But then it was in sort of 2011, 2012, it started to move further. And then it just spread really quickly. It, it was in Turkey by, I think, 2014, and then into Southeast Europe. And then it spread up into, through the Caucasus, um, into Russia, Kazakhstan. And then more recently, it's spread through Asia. So it's now in China, um, India, Sri Lanka, Vietnam. Um, I think Thailand just last week reported that they had lumpy skin disease as well. So it really has spread far more quickly than people imagined it would. The reasons behind, behind that are genuinely unclear. Um, I actually am a um, coordinator of the DEFEND project, which is an EU-funded consortium, and we have one of our work packages is focused on looking at that. Why? Um, what were the factors that promoted the spread of lumpy skin disease so suddenly into so many different areas? And one of the theories people have come up with is it's to do with conflict, 
So about the time that lumpy skin disease started to spread was um, about the time when the Syrian civil war was happening and that whole area was becoming um, a, a more unstable than usual. And that obviously caused uh, migration of people and animals in different directions um, and also caused a reduction in veterinary services. So one of the theories is that could that possibly have allowed lumpy skin disease to, to start spreading? So that's one of the theories where we're looking at um, uh, in the DEFEND project. Unfortunately, nobody really knows uh, yet why, but uh, because it is transmitted so quickly by vectors, that's definitely been one of the drivers. So I think, as we see, we have a number of diseases in Africa. While they're in Africa, they don't get a whole heap of attention. It's a little bubble which is kind of left. I know with COVID and everything that's happening now, we're, we're much more aware of understanding where diseases may come from and looking for those early signs which is good. Lumpy skin disease definitely fell into this problem. But once it started moving out, you've been able to do a lot, lot of work on it. You've been getting a lot more green lights to move ahead, haven't you? Yes, definitely, yes. I think I've been um, been at Perbright since 2016, So, and I'm currently the, the OIE laboratory expert for lumpy skin disease, um, and, and that's what I was recruited to, to Perbright to do, to build up the lumpy skin disease um, research that's going on here. Um, and it really was a case of right place at the right time, because I arrived here with a remit to do more lumpy skin disease, also sheep pox and goat pox, the two closely related viruses to lumpy skin disease virus. Just as this rapid spread was beginning to happen, um, and and just as it was becoming clear that you couldn't control lumpy skin disease with management techniques alone, you needed more. Um, when sheepox and goatpox um, in the past, there have been occasional outbreaks of them in um, uh, Greece and in Bulgaria, um, and it has been able, possible to control those by um, quarantining, by culling the the affected herds, um, and by strict movement controls. Um, and I think some people imagine the same would be true for lumpy skin disease. It's also a caprepox virus from the same genus. So they thought that pretty much the same thing is probably going to happen if it ever does reach as far through Turkey into Europe. But um, that turned out not to be the case. Those techniques which had worked for sheepox and goatpox in the past, they didn't work for lumpy skin disease. It, it continued to spread and it outpaced those kinds of management techniques. I think that leads us very nicely on to the work you've been doing because... Yeah, it was a surprise what it was doing. We don't know how it's moved and things like that. So we suddenly found we didn't understand what was happening with this this disease. And with blue tongue, you can point. We know it. We know it's midges that carry it. So we we understand that. But what six years ago there was even this question of what are the vectors? What what is carrying it? And how is how is that actually functioning? So that's seemed to be the area you really started looking at and working at. Yes, that's right. We did. Um, um, I had a lovely time um, looking for gaps. So did my own little gap analysis of what, what do we really not know about lumpy skin disease at the moment and what is really the key priorities for us to investigate. And you're absolutely right. That was um, transmission was a really important one. It's very, very difficult to design and put into place effective management programs if you don't know how the disease is being transmitted. So I remember chatting with you and uh, we managed to um, source some funding from the BBSRC. Um, so it's a, a UKRI. Oh, I really should know what it stands for. British Biological and Science Oh dear, that's a fail right there, isn't it? But they very kindly funded us for the initial project, which we called LIMPED. Um, so they funded the LIMPED project with um, some funding from you and some support from you guys as well, for which we're very grateful. And that enables us to answer those initial questions. So how 
is the virus acquired. We, I, I kind of split the transmission up into three sections. So there's how is the virus acquired by the insect vector, arthropod vector from the, the cow? How is it then retained in the insect vector? And then the third step is how is it then transmitted from the insect back to the next cow? So those are like the three steps. So the project that we did looked at just those first two steps. So how is the virus acquired from um, a, an animal? And then how long is it retained in that insect vector for? Um, and that's the work that, that's just been published in the Journal of Virology that um, you mentioned at the start. Um, so we had uh, some, I think key to this was a, a great um, a collaboration we had with Chris Clerk at Cianciano. So he had developed a lumpy skin disease model, um, an experimental model of lumpy skin disease and very kindly um, uh, taught us what that model was. Um, so uh, with some looking in the literature and with the help of Chris, we set up this experimental model here at Purbright in the high containment units. So we inoculated cattle with lumpy skin disease virus and generated um, a clinical lumpy skin disease virus. Um, and then we took pots of insects. Um, and you're right, we don't know which vectors are able to transmit lumpy skin disease. So we looked at two different species of mosquito. So that's the Aedes aegypti and the Culex quinquefasciatus. We looked at a species of midges, Culacoides nubeculosus. And we looked at flies as stable flies, Stomoxus calcitrans. So they're the biting stable flies. Um, and we took pots of these guys and we put them onto the cattle and then waited for 10 minutes. And then we would take those insects back to the laboratory. Um, and some of them we would analyze straight away. Those were our day zero samples. But some of them we would um, put it back into the incubators. And then we would sample them at one day later, two days, four days, and eight days later. And in that way, we could see how many of these potential vectors acquired the virus from the cattle, and then how long they retained it for as well. So that's those first two steps I was talking about, the acquisition and the retention. One of the other things we wanted to look at, one of the key questions was, is it both a non-clinical and clinical cattle that are sources of virus for these vectors? I'm on a roll, so I'm just, once you get me started, I can't stop. If you if you need me to that's start fine, then. <laughs> so non-clinical and clinical animals. So we knew that when you inoculate lumpy skin disease into cattle, not all of the cattle will develop clinical disease. It's usually only about 50%. Now, no one knows why this is, why it's exactly the same virus, same inoculum, same everything, but some cattle will just shrug it off and some cattle will develop full-blown lumpy skin disease. And that was the same in our experiment. So out of the 10 animals that we um, inoculated, three of them got lumpy skin disease virus. Even more interestingly, two of them got really moderate disease, so quite a lot of lesions. Um, one of them had a, quite a mild case of lumpy skin disease. And then the other seven uh, animals were just fine. We examined the insects, how much virus they picked up from the nodules of those clinical animals, and we compared it to how much virus was acquired from the non-clinical animals that had no skin nodules at all. And it was clear that the insects picked up virus from the clinicals, hardly any of them from the non-clinicals. I think we looked at over 2,000, it was exactly 2,019 insects from those non-clinical animals that we looked at over the experiment, and only seven were lumpy skin disease positive. So another really important collaboration is with Dr. Simon Gubbins, who's our mathematical modeler here at Purbright. So in all, we'd looked at over 3,000 of these insects, so over 2,000 on those non-clinical and another 1,000 on the clinical animals. Um, and he was able to take all this data and, and then model it to come up with estimates of infectiousness. So basically, how, how likely is it that 
these animals are going to be uh, sources of lumpy skin disease. And absolutely, those clinical animals are the important ones. The chances of an insect acquiring the virus from your non-clinical animals that don't have the lumps is really very low. So that was, um, I think, quite a key finding for us. And you mentioned you tried a number of different vectors. Did you see a difference in different species? Interestingly, uh, again, no. And we we were expecting to see a difference because some of these um, insect vectors um, have very different methods of feeding. So the the mosquitoes are very, very careful feeders. They will insert their proboscis and they will search out for a blood vessel. So they're very clean, pernickety feeders, whereas your flies are really dirty feeders. So they they have these slicing um, and and midges uh, do this as well. And they they generate a pool of blood and then suck the blood up. So they make much more of a mess. And I was thinking with such different feeding mechanisms, I would imagine to see some difference. But actually, the acquisition data that Simon came up with showed that there was no significant difference between those four insects. So whatever this method of acquisition of the virus is, it's really quite non-specific. It's the same no matter how you feed on, on that animal. The, the virus has the same risk of being acquired. So is this looking just like a mechanical transmission? Yes. Um, The data that we found very much supported mechanical transmission. Um, So a couple of other poxviruses, Falpox and Myxomavirus, there's been some work done on those back in the 1960s and 70s, quite a long time ago. And that data suggested it was mechanical. So there's there's mechanical and there's biological. So your, your biological transmission is like blue tongue, where the vector is actually a key part of that animal's, the, that virus's life cycle, and it will replicate in the vector. Whereas in mechanical transmission, there's no replication in the vector. It's just used as a mechanism to move from one animal to the next. And work that had been done with previous poxviruses had shown that it, poxviruses tend to be transmitted mechanically. Um, and then our data backed that up as well. Um, I mentioned we, we took insects back to the lab and then left them there for, for eight days. And um, we found that we could um, see no increase in the amount of virus present in these uh, insect vectors over that eight-day period. But interestingly, we could still detect virus as long as eight days later. That was in the Aedes mosquitoes and the uh, Stomoxus flies. So in the Coolacoides midges, we could detect up to four days, but not at eight. But it was more difficult to keep the midges alive for eight days. I think we could say it's it's at least eight days in the 80s mosquitoes and the stomoxus flies. And there's definitely the potential for that kind of long-term um, transmission to occur um, with other insects as well. And it could be longer than eight days. We didn't look um, any further. I, I find that quite interesting because I always think mechanical is a fairly short-term thing. Absolutely. No, you're absolutely right. Mechanical transmission is generally other viruses that are known to be mechanically transmitted. It's really quick, 30 minutes for some of them. You've got to get from one animal to the next super quick before um, uh, that virus disappears, disintegrates, dies, whatever. But um, pox viruses are known to be super hardy. They, yeah. they yeah. survive in the environment really well. And it now looks like they actually survive, lumpy skin disease at least, survives very well on, on insects as well, these insect vectors. Um, which, of course, has implications for long-term um, transmission from farm to farm to, to more distant farms. So I don't know if you can tell this. <laughs> is the virus surviving on the outside of the of the vector or is it actually being sucked in and then it's managing to survive inside even though it's not mul- multiplying? Excellent question. And definitely we are working on that at the moment. You're absolutely right. Is it uh, one of the um, hypotheses? Is it is it just surviving on the proboscis and the head? Does it? I mean, it might go into the abdomen, but it wouldn't survive there 
for more than eight days, I wouldn't have thought. So um, is this some kind of a contamination issue? Is there some kind of a special niche in these insects where it's able to survive? I think, again, it comes back to the fact that it seems to be able to do it on such different insects. Whatever niche it has got, whatever mechanism it uses in order to survive for this length of time, it's obviously present on very different insect species. So it's a, a, a very non-specific but very effective mechanism. Okay, so I'll get you back in a year's time to okay. tell us that one. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> You've been telling us over the last year or so, we've, we've heard some of this work which has been great to hear, and I think it's been really exciting. How do you think this, these findings drive our understanding of how we control the disease? I think they, um, so they gel really nicely with, with previous work. So um, people have shown that Aedes mosquitoes, and then um, Krista Clerk's team has shown with Stomoxus flies that you can get vector-borne transmission. So I don't think it's the, the fact that lumpy skin disease is vector-borne that's so novel. Um, I think it's the fact that we did 3,000 insects, individually examined each of them for the amount of virus they had in them, and then had Simon with his um, uh, modelling, mathematical modelling, that he was able to, for example, um, calculate the R0. So a year ago, nobody knew what R0 was, but everyone knows what R0. So this is the reproduction rate, how likely one um, uh, insect is to cause outbreaks in other um, animals or tra transmit the virus to other animals. And so he was able to do things like that, estimate R0 values, and, and Stomoxis was the highest R0 values. Aedes and Coelacoides were both found to be over one, which means they could support a, an outbreak. So I think that's the that's where um, uh, I think our study brings the field forward, brings the the the, uh, the knowledge forward because we have um, uh, such a vast amount of data um, from so many insects. It brings down your uncertainty about the data. We're much more con um, confident about the data, and because we're able to make these predictions with the data as well, and make these models and um, look at, for example the infectiousness of these cattle. So I mentioned before that we had two animals that had, you know, decent lumpy skin disease, moderate level of illness. And then we had a third that just had quite mild. Um, and you could see quite clearly that the animal with the mild lumpy skin disease had less virus in its blood, less virus in its skin nodules, skin lesions, and also less virus in the insects that fed on it. So Simon was able to put this into an inf infectiousness um, kind of model and show that the more the more severe the illness in the animal, the more of a source of virus they are for the insect. So individual animals vary in their infectiousness, so to speak. People look at culling as part of the control. What you're showing there, there isn't a lot of drive to go culling a whole lead of things that don't actually show signs. That's right. So I, I definitely don't make policy at all. I advise and I advise people who have the very difficult um, uh, job of putting together these, for example, culling policies, what, what's the right thing to do. And, and absolutely, our data supports the, the, the modified culling method that some countries have used, which you focus on those clinical animals, removing them from the herd. And the non-clinical animals that may have this very low level of virus, maybe like we found seven in a 2,000 insects may acquire a very small amount of virus. Um, so they would be less of a priority um, uh, looking, looking at our data. Um, it's clear the most dangerous animals are those clinical ones. 
And I think this certainly further supports the use of fly control on farm as well. I think vector control is a really, uh, it's a really tricky one in general. Um, I think there are, I think it's difficult to entirely control your vector populations. It's always going to be a struggle. I think keeping animals inside, using those kinds of methods of control, they're unlikely to work on their own. Um, yeah. I don't think they're, they're going to do the job. And I think vector control is more, much more likely to be a part of a, a, a suite of, of um, techniques and tools that people would use to control lumpy skin disease virus. So vector control, a part of what you're doing, and then you're looking at vaccination as really being the other side of the coin. Yeah, so vaccination has been shown to be highly effective. There's some very good vaccines out there. That was the thing that stood out for me in the outbreaks that there were in Europe. The fact that there was a really great cooperation between different countries. Um, countries were very open with what was happening. They worked together. They collaborated um, and they put in place this enormous vaccination program um, and made sure they vaccinated many, many millions of cattle. Um, and that was very effective at preventing lumpy skin disease from spreading further eastwards um, uh, into Europe. Um, and there's been some lovely publications that have come out looking at, uh, specifically at you know, how effective was the vaccine and, and things like that. So vaccination definitely um, a, a key part of programs. Education is is another important one, educating farmers and, and healthcare givers, veterinary healthcare givers, what, you know, what does lumpy skin disease look like, making sure people recognise it for what it is and, and are able to alert authorities if they suspect a, a, a case. Education of laborat um, the laboratory technicians so that when they have a suspected case they know the right diagnostic tools to use things like that so um, uh, i think that plays a, a role as well i'm really pleased you mentioned education <laughs> I, I, I always like it when we bring education into these because it's so important i don't want to derail talking about the paper by talking about vaccination so we'll just go back so the lead author was Dr. Beatrice Sanz-Bernando? That's right, yes. So she joined you for this project? That's right. She was the um, scientist who counted all of those 3,000 insects and ran 3,000 PCRs to, to check them. She has been amazing. I um, cannot speak highly enough of her. She's really driven this project forward, and I've, I've been very much just tapping from side to side occasionally. Um, she's been great. She's really good. I wanted to make sure she got a little bit of recognition. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so I've been really excited. Everything I've heard about this, and it's been good people having a chance to hear. Have I missed any questions? Is there anything else about this paper that, that you think you sh we should be telling people? No, I, th I think you've done an excellent interviewing job. I think you've, you've covered all the points that needed to be to be covered. And yes, um, uh, it's open access, of course, on, on Journal of Virology. So very, very much encourage people to, to, to read the paper. And if anyone has any further questions or queries, they're, they're welcome to contact me at Perbrighton. Happy to discuss further. I will put a link to the paper in the notes for the podcast. We will cover those kind of bits. Always put them there so people understand what's happening. So that'll be in the notes. Thank you very much, Pip. Been great talking to you. Cheers. It amazes me the things I learned during some of these talks. I never knew that mosquitoes were pernickety feeders.
something new every day. I'm really pleased to be able to announce the launch of a new book from the FAO, the Food and Agricultural Organization. This is Veterinary Vaccines, Principles and Applications. It's a concise and authoritative reference featuring easily readable reviews of the latest research in vaccinology and vaccine immune responses to pathogens. And it's got major importance for the economic impact to livestock. It covers the advice and recommendations for vaccine production, quality control, vaccination schemes, how to choose your vaccines, how to develop programs, how to handle vaccines in the field, all of these areas that are essential for disease control programs. It seems very good timing considering everything that's been going on for the last year or two and how we're more and more aware of the impact of One Health diseases and how those are important for both human and animal health. It's been compiled by the senior animal health officers at the Food and Agricultural Organization of the United Nations. And it's got contributions from a number of different people. I'm really pleased to say that John Atkinson and I actually have written one of the chapters, the one on aspects of vaccine accessibility and commercialization. I promise you by plugging this book, I get no commission from it at all. I think it's a really good book with some essential information to help with planning. So it's worth getting hold of. There's also a new edition of Emergence, which has recently been released. This sees a number of updates to the Emergence website, which include a translator and a wall of fame for our rabies heroes. In addition, there's a new focus on article, which has been written by Emma Taylor. And that looks at the use of modelling for aiding in the control of infectious diseases. And that's it from me for this edition. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 